Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hi, I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor, and this is the Radio Times podcast. Every week, I sit down with a celebrity guest from the world of TV or film to talk about their lives, both on and off screen. To my fellow TV enthusiasts, I hope you enjoy listening. This week's guest on the Radio Times podcast is Ramesh Ranganathan. Born and raised in Crawley in West Sussex, Ramesh's childhood was a tale of two halves. Life started in a two-up, two-down house, and he attended private school. But after his father was imprisoned for fraud for two years, life as he knew it was upended. Years later, he left his job as a maths teacher to pursue comedy full-time. And although he doesn't shy away from how tough it was at first to make ends meet, what has ensued is a glittering career, which has established him as one of Britain's leading comics. In this episode, we discuss women in comedy and what he thinks of people who brand women unfunny. I feel like if you're watching a comedian that you don't find funny, just accept that they're not for you. That, that is, it's as simple as that. There's no need to get angry about it. There's no need to suddenly say, oh, this is the state of comedy today. There's no reason to go, I used to enjoy Only Fools and Horses and I have to watch this person. They are not competing with your favourite sitcom of all time, okay? We're trying to offer variety and, we're try- and, and different types of people want to be spoken to from comedy. Accept it. Plus, we talk about why he wouldn't send his kids to private school, how his three young boys keep him humble and why, if his career ended tomorrow, you'd still find him with a mic hooked up to a lamppost in the park. Ramesh Ranganathan, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thank you so much. I've been such a fan of the Radio Times podcast for such a long time, so to be on it, it's, uh, it's an honour. Look, this conversation goes everywhere, so it's going to be about TV. We'll mention Below Deck, childhood TV, career, and then we'll come on to talk about stand-up. So it's a little bit kitchen sink. We will go everywhere. But let's Mm. start with, first and foremost, what is the view from your sofa? The view from my sofa is uh, basically we we moved into this house a couple of years ago and um, we watch TV most of the time in this snug that's at the back of the kitchen that my wife was like, became obsessed with making the kitchen dining area a living space. And so, and she got an interior designer to, we've got like, so the view of my sofa is, from my sofa is like a big TV. And then on either side of it, a series of books that I've never even looked at because they're there for the sort of aesthetic appeal. There's a couple of like vases and stuff that I've never interacted with. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't interact with vases, but do you know what I mean? I don't, my attachment to that stuff is zero, I would say. 
And then normally to the right hand side, we've got our two dogs who we bought these two matching armchairs and they have claimed those armchairs as theirs. So basically each of them sits in the armchair watching TV. Well, one of them watches TV. One of them's deeply uninterested, but one of them sits and watches like she's in the, like she's watching the show with us. Do you know what I mean? But I, I don't know what she's getting for it, but the other ones just doesn't care. I heard this thing that dogs can't see 2D and I don't think it's right because I don't have dogs, but my partner does. And they will interact with the television. So I'm like, surely they can see something. Well, if she is looking at something for that long that she can't see, I would say <laughs> there are other issues going on. because I, I don't understand how her attention is being transfixed by just a blank audio. <laughs> like, unless she's a really hardcore radio listener. Which would like, be very think, sweet. Yeah, I think she's seeing something. Do you know what I mean? But I, mm. I, I imagine she's saying to Reggie, her brother... Oh, we gathered around the wireless today, Richard. I don't know why you don't get involved. You know I mean? or maybe, maybe like the other dogs thinking, I don't know why she's looking at this. There's nothing going on there. You can happily carry on with your life and just listen. I don't know what's up with her. In your family, who controls the remote? Because when you have kids, I think the dynamic shifts, doesn't it? Well, our children very rarely watch TV with us, to be honest with you. So, so our, our children are, I've got three boys, 14, 12 and nine. And, um, they're mainly, uh, they've got, they've all got screens in their rooms. Do you know what I mean? And so they'll like either be playing PlayStation or, or doing weird FaceTimes with their mates or whatever. So actually we have to make appointments with them to watch TV. Like, like, we'll like there'll, there'll be certain things that we watch as a family. So for example, um, I would exclude myself from this, but they're all into Strictly. So when Strictly's on, they'll sit down and watch that together. Bake Off is something we we watch together. So like that, there, there's certain things that we watch together. But apart from that, our television experiences very, and also the football because we're all Arsenal fans. I was talking to you about it before we started recording. But they, um, so that isn't that is a big when the games are on. That's a big thing in our house. But apart yeah. from that, everybody's pretty individual. My my wife and I watch TV together, but there are our tastes are very different. So basically. There's loads of stuff that we watch separate from each other. And then the stuff that overlaps, we're not allowed to watch separately. So we have to watch together. Below Deck being one of them. So <laughs> that, that's kind of how it operates. But our kids, our kids are not often found. We do do film nights, though. So once every couple of weeks, if I'm in, we'll, we'll get like popcorn and stuff and like choose a film and I'll sit down and watch it. It's pretty wholesome. Oh, it's very sweet. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever watch your own work together? God, no, absolutely not. Yeah, I don't I'm even. Teenage I, I, kids. Yeah. Well, they... I would. I never watch my own work either. I, 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 I don't. I, I, no, I don't watch myself on TV. I, I couldn't think of anything. Well, I could think of lots of things worse. My imagination's <laughs> pretty wild, but. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, uh, I, I don't want to watch myself on TV. I mean, even when, like, we're making shows where I've got to watch the edit sort of to give notes, I find mm. it absolutely agonising because you just can't... All you see is stuff that you do that's annoying. Do you know what I mean? And so... And stuff that you did look wrong. Like, if it's scripted stuff, I just... I'll see, like, acting I did badly. Or if it's... Um, if it's like non-script, like entertainment stuff, like I'll never watch League of Their Own or anything like that because I just I'll just see things or I'll think of things that I should have said that were funnier than what I actually said on the show. So, uh, so I, I tend not to watch it. And my kids have got no interest, absolutely no interest in watching more of the man that lives with them. You know what I mean, like the idea that you would sit down and watch an hour of the bloke that sat next—it feels so insane to me. Do you know what I mean? The, the only thing, the only thing that we did watch is. Reggie, the eldest of our dogs, was on a show with me. Um, and me and Rob Beckett did uh, Rob and Romesh versus Cruffs. So Rob and I got a dog at the same time. And um, we entered our dogs for Cruffs. And so the boys were very excited to watch Reggie on television. But um, their interest in watching me, I would say, is, is close to zero. As in, and when I say close to zero, I'd say it's probably lower than zero because <laughs> if... They stumbled upon me by accident. They they couldn't change the channel quicker. Do you know what I mean? So, it's one of those interesting relationship, and I think it highlights very nicely a family hierarchy. And I think that's good. It keeps you humble. You know, three teenage boys gonna keep yeah. you grounded. Listen, their if their main goal was to keep me humble, they're absolutely they're, <laughs> they're overachieving on all of those targets. Do you know what I mean? Like they their their humility delivery, I would say is. 
unsurpassable. It's, it's, it's oh, how funny. What do you feel about panel shows, comedy? Do you watch a lot of that? Does it feel like work? Uh, I do watch... Um, like I, I, I watch a lot of scripted comedy. I watch loads of stand-up. Like I, 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 and I, look, I mean, the thing is, one of the things is since working in comedy, it hasn't reduced me being a fan of it. You know, mm. I, I do really love it. Um, I'd say like panel shows, I sort of, panel shows for me are not necessarily like, personally speaking, not appointment to view really. Like that's yeah. something that like, if it happens to be on, I'll, I'll, I'll sit and, you know, if I'm flicking and like, and and one's on I'll st- I'll stop and watch it do you know what I mean I I'd say the except there's a couple of exceptions to that like would I lie to you I think is you know one of if not the best one of those cuz I I sort of like the shows where they're playing a game and the funny is incidental like you know like so would I lie to you it's funny because they're just really trying to <laughs> do well at this game do you know what I mean and the same thing with like things like Taskmaster and and Cat's Does Countdown I feel like you're not watching a show that they're just trying to be funny. They're watching you're watching a show where like they they're hoping it's funny. Do you know what I mean? But mm. they're playing a game, and I, and those are kind of the shows that I like the most. You know, so I, I will watch those. Is there anything that you do make an appointment to view? You know, your real telly loves. You know, I'm kind of like I jump on late on all the trends. Do you know what I mean? So, for <laughs> example, I didn't stop watching watching Game of Thrones till the pandemic. Because like there's there's something about um, it, it came from cinema for me where like I realised that whenever I'd heard loads of good things about a film, I would always be disappointed because I'd allowed myself to get so hyped up. I had a horrible experience of I know I'm older than you, but I went to watch Blair Witch Project was a massive deal when I was like a teen, like when I was like maybe in my twenties or something, and. Um, everybody had been raving about this film and I booked tickets like one of the first showings in London to go and watch it and then I watched this sort of slightly annoying camping story and I was like really disappointed. <laughs> now I realise that that film is great but because I'd hyped it up so much and you know I, I was I was totally expecting to soil myself. I decided that whenever stuff was like hyped up I, w- I didn't it put me off watching it so Game of Thrones I didn't watch because everybody was talking about it and then the same thing with Succession, you know, like uh, everybody been raving about it. So I was like, I don't want to watch that. I don't want to watch that. I'm going to get disappointed. Then eventually I did start watching it. So, in answer, so the long-winded, waffly answer to your question is sort of like compelling drama is kind of my appointment to view. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I, I would say. But also uh, Bake Off is an uh, appointment to view for me. Um, I was about to describe Below Deck as an appointment to view. It isn't. It's constant, non-stop yeah. viewing. Let's throw it back to your childhood. So you grew up in Crawley in West Sussex. What's mm. your first TV memory? My earliest TV memories are stuff like Sesame Street and stuff like that. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And, and uh, I used to watch Tom and Jerry and then I used to watch, um, you know, Saturday morning television. You know, I got into Transformers off watching Saturday morning television, Timmy Mallet, people like that. Those are kind of my early memories. I remember watching like this show and I can't remember the name of it, which is incredibly annoying for this podcast, but <laughs> it was about um, uh, it was about this alien. I think it was an alien that, that would communicate via a kid. It sounds quite dark for a children's TV show, but, like, this kid could only allow the alien into their mind to communicate if she completely blanked her mind, or he... I, I can't even remember if it was a boy or a girl. Completely blanked their mind, and then it would start speaking through them. And then I became obsessed with being able to blank your mind. It's actually incredibly difficult to not think of anything. Yep. And I actually spent... Weirdly, I predated the whole mindfulness movement by quite a while, just off the back of this TV show. But I used to practice trying to blank my mind. But what would happen is, every time I'd do that, a little voice in my head would go, you're doing it, you're doing it. And then I'd realise that I'm not doing it because I'm acknowledging that I'm doing it. It was a horrible... It was yeah. actually quite traumatic. I don't know why I brought it up now, actually. It's not something I've visited recently. But um, I used to watch loads... Like, I used to watch loads of cartoons. Like, there is um, a cartoon character called Yosemite Sam, who's in, like, Bugs Bunny. And I used to just find him so... Like, that's my first experience with comedy and, like, starting to appreciate comedy, I think, is, like, I found him so funny. And actually, I would say there's some of my comedy that still stems from what I learned from Yosemite Sam because he was just so 
deadpan and he got pissed off and like and and it ended up that ended up being the comedy that I sort of loved do you know what I mean like he, he I just found him I just found it hilarious I remember just sitting laughing my head off at all of those cartoons man that was kind of and my mum and dad like used to um they used to find it hilarious how funny I used to find it I was like sort of obsessive do you know what I mean was tv watching ever really a family affair I grew up in a time when you just had the TV on, like it was a fire. All the time, yeah. Like all the time. Like now, you know, you sit down and people go, shall we watch some TV? That wasn't the case. Like when I was growing up, you just, you woke up in the morning and you put the TV (laughs) on and it just ran Mm. all day, every day. And then even when we had visitors around, you just turn it down a bit. You'd still not turn it off. And if you did turn it off, I don't know, you'd have this existential crisis where you start to hear your own thoughts or whatever. And you think, I don't want that. Do you know what I mean? So it was so mad. And like, but I would say like, you know, every evening was sat. I mean, I watched a lot of, my family watched a lot of television growing up. It was, it was, um, it was every night that we were together. We'd just sit, you know, it would be two hours minimum, two hours every night. You'd be sat, sat around the television and it's not like that. I mean, Mike, listen, my kids' screen time is hugely up on that, but it's not sat with us watching TV. You know? No, I know. It's it's strange how much the world has changed. Because like you say, you know, when I was growing up, every evening would be, we'd be sat in the living room, the TV would be on. And even if you're chatting or even if you're having dinner, it might be on in the background. And now it does feel a lot more isolated viewing rather than together yeah i just feel like the culture's changed of that it's like you mm. sort of you sit down because you want you want to put something on and then like even that like i remember like if you'd have the tv on if you turned it off back then the the house would feel so quiet yeah do you know what i mean like it just it's just like this constant chatter in the background and i did sort of you know there's part of that i slightly miss because like what i do think now is the same with music is that we've become so like, you know, the streamers and the channels being so good at pushing you towards what you like. What then happens is it's less likely that you'll find something that you didn't expect to like that you end up liking. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And like, it'd be like, you'd have the TV and you go, oh, actually, it turns out I really do like 19th century vases and their history. You're less likely to, unless somebody tells you, you're less likely to stumble onto some weird thing like, you know, if my, like, Below Deck I found by accident is the honest <laughs> truth. And if I hadn't have found Below Deck, I'm not just saying this, my life would be significantly poorer. I mean, it, it, you know, it's something that, I, I dread to think what the Romish that didn't have Below Deck in his <laughs> life would look like, what his happiness quotient would be. I've got no idea. I, I don't even want to think about it, to be honest with you. No, I, I'm completely with you. I think especially things like Below Deck, I mean, I'm so uninterested generally in reality tv it doesn't you know i've never really fallen victim to love island or anything like that but below deck hook line and sinker and i'm fine with that like you say yeah. it found me yeah. yeah and thank god it did for both of us you know <laughs> but I, I i feel like um that um i'm the same as you with reality tv what i would say about myself is i'd like to think my tastes are more sophisticated than they actually are that, that is the honest truth i talk like, like, for example, I don't watch Love Island, but if I did, if I did happen <laughs> to start watching it, I would watch it to the end. I know that I yeah. would, do you know what I mean? But I've just got no, I've just got, there's lots of uh, things about Love Island I don't like, do you know what I mean? So yeah, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, I'm with you. But with Below <laughs> Deck, I just, um, it's one of those shows that because there's so much of it, you can have it on all the time and, and th- th- there's so much of it. it's almost daunting how much there is of it. It, I've almost treated it as a job to get through it. And and, and like, and an enjoyable job, you know, I love my work and my work currently is getting through below deck. But like, you know, my my wife and I constantly talk about, um, we just talk about those people and what they've done wrong, like they're people we know. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you not feel like, I'll often be watching a show and I'll I'll turn to my wife and I go, do you not think she was out of order there? And then she go, I think you're being, I think you're, that's a typical bloke thing to say because you're not seeing it from her side. And I'm like, oh my God. And then we get into a thing, like we're mediating between friends. Do you know what I mean? I interviewed Richard Curtis and he... Congrats. Um, I know, that was a big one for me. But he it's was It's a big saying, old name drop. <laughs> Painful, wasn't it? No, it was good. I liked it. He said it cash. 
Yeah, so casually. Yeah, Richard yeah. Curtis, my pal. Um, <laughs> he said that he watches Love Island, and I thought it was so interesting because obviously he's behind most of the great rom-coms, and he was like. Yeah, watching Love Island for me is so interesting because it's watching people fall in love in real time in a way that we haven't really had access to before. And I thought, wow, you've made that sound like a really good pastime to have. Although I would say he's massively misinterpreted the show. (laughs) If he's under the impression that he's watching those people fall in love, rather than... I mean, if he means fall in love with a media deal, then yeah. (laughs) The next uh, Pretty Little Things um, sponsorship. Very true. You've described your own childhood as a tale of two halves, almost. And Mm. I wondered what the view from your sofa growing up looked like and how that changed. Well, it started off in a very sort of comfortable two-up, two-down house. And then, you know, for the first few years. And, you know, it had a a box TV in the corner of the room. The TV was the centre of the living room, uh, as it was in all living rooms at that time. And then... Um, our house got repossessed and then we end up in another house where the view is very similar. But the, the, for, 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 a, for a small part of my childhood, I, I was living with my mum and my brother. My dad went to prison. I was living with my mum, and d- my mum, dad and my brother in one room in a bed and breakfast where like we were, it was supposed to be put up in council property, but they didn't have enough houses. So we put in this bed and breakfast for a while and I didn't have a sofa. Uh, my view was from the bed. So it's like, <laughs> so we just had this, it was just a bedroom with a microwave in the corner of it. And then the t- there was a TV kind of, you know, like how bed and breakfast has it on like a hit on a bracket coming out the wall. So it was kind mm. of, it was, the, the, my sofa was a bed for a while and not in a cool sofa bed stay around way. Just, it was just like, we didn't have a sofa a bit. And then it sort of, uh, it changed again. So like we did get a council house in the end. And then it was um it was just a very much smaller version of what I'd had before. I mean the ingredients were the same. The house was a lot smaller. So yeah, I kind of I would say the bed and breakfast was the most radical uh change. But apart from that, it was very much variations on the theme, I would say. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Sofa pointed at the TV, but the TV, sofa, and rooms varied in size, yeah. <laughs> depending on what we were going through. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. You moved from a private school to a state school. Mm. What was that transition like? Well, I kind of, um, my mum and dad were like obsessed with, because they'd come over from Sri Lanka, they were determined to to put me into private school. But, you know, because they wanted to me to have the best education I could. Yeah. But they couldn't afford to fully... Um, they couldn't have afford, they couldn't afford the fees. So what happened was, is I ended up having to. It was, I ended up having to like do this like you could do this like scholarship exam where like if you got a certain percentage, like they'd knock your feet, like you you wouldn't have to pay as much. And so um, they basically, <laughs> it's typical Asian style, like drilled me to to do because they wanted me to go to the school but couldn't afford it. So it's like the only way I could get in is if I, and I didn't particularly want to go myself. So really in hindsight, I should have just flunked the exam and, and, and they wouldn't have been able to send me. But um, I ended up going to this private school and I, I didn't enjoy my time there, to be honest with you, because like, because I was coming from a different background, like everybody else had quite a lot of money and we didn't. So I was a bit of an outsider. I mean, we did, I, I, but we didn't have that, you know, we were on a lower kind of level to them. Obviously, we must have had some money if they're able to afford to pay for me to go to school in the first place. But... I felt like a real outsider and I used to get the taking the mickey out of me because the school was in Surrey and I lived in Crawley and they thought Crawley was common. So I was like very much like a kind of, I didn't really enjoy my time massively at that school. What I would say is it was clear to me that those people that were at that school, you know, their opportunity, their aspirate, you know, their, 
they had high aspirations. They were, you know, they were looking to achieve their teachers and their parents demanded a lot of them, you know, and so they were kind of drilled to kind of, to try and make the most of themselves, I guess, you know, you know, for, for however, whatever arguments you want to have about what that looks like is, you know, it's not for the Radio Times podcast. But, but when I, when I left that school, I was scared, you know, I was sort of excited because I wanted to go to a state school and I didn't feel like I was, I had a proper home at the private school, you know, at this, at this school that I was at. I, I, you know, I got like a, you know, without getting too dark, you know, I was getting, I got racially abused. I got abused for like being from Crawley. You know, it wasn't, I had friends there, but I did get bullied quite a bit. Do you know what I mean? And so I was kind of not that bothered about leaving, even, even though my dad was like really upset because he felt like it was a reflection on his failure. But I, and then I went to, um, and then I went to this, school and I was like terrified but to be honest with you that's I wish I'd gone there sooner I mean I had such a great time you know like I met a bigger cross-section of people everybody there was from Crawley so you know there was none of those issues it was just my it's like I'd found my people do you know what I mean yeah like it was it was so much I just had a great time you know like I got on with the people better I felt like I was surrounded by people that were like me do you know what I mean it was just better and yeah. so um I mean you know I went on to teach uh yeah. at that same weirdly at that same school that I went to and my uh, uh, that's where I met my wife but that school being as good as it as it was and that experience being as good as it was and my personal experience meant that we decided that we'd never send our children to to be privately educated it's kind of a decision we made that you know, if you're lucky enough to have a decent comprehensive school, which not everybody is, yeah. we just decided we wanted our kids to be, like, comprehensively educated. So that's kind of the way we've gone. But not that I've got anything against it. I don't want to start getting on a high horse about that. If people... No, no. I get why you would, but... But I think it's so fair what you're saying, because I think it's a real privilege to be able to go to a good comprehensive school and that isn't always an option. No, exactly. And it becomes then about geographical locations. You know, I remember people moving schools to get into a good in inverted commas secondary school and and the pressure that that puts on parents i mean parents parents pretend to be religious to get their kids into good schools do you know what i mean i mean it's like uh, you know it sounds mad but like you're trying to give your kids i guess the idea is you're trying to give your kids the best life chances you can Mm. or whatever and so you're willing to do anything and like and i get that and and you know I, i i as you said we're privileged enough to have like good comprehensive schools where we, and not everybody has that privilege. Do you know what I mean? But, um, I just feel like, you know, personally, I, I want my kids to meet a, 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 as broad a cross section of people as they possibly can. I just think that's almost as, uh, that's almost as important as the facilities and the sort of, you know, the class sizes and stuff like that. It prepares them for life and they're, they're yeah. open-minded young adults, do you know what I mean? So, you know, that was kind of something that we felt strongly about. I was really lucky because I grew up in London, which means you have such a range of friends and meet so many people from different backgrounds. You know, for me, again, like sexuality and gender, I think some people find it really difficult to wrap their heads around. But for me, that was always, you know, from about 12, I had, you know, trans friends and that was just never something that really crossed my mind. But I think what's so interesting is when you were saying about your experience at private school is that awareness that I think some children have of their privilege without quite grasping it. But the idea that at the age of, I don't know, 13, 14, you could understand that or you would think that growing up somewhere meant that you were better than someone else or because someone grew up somewhere, which just that kind of narrow mindedness is, like you said, not something that you'd really want children to engage with, but it almost surprises me. Yeah, well, I, I, well the thing is, I often think that about, you know, it's a tricky one because, like, you know, I, I, I don't want to give you the impression that everybody was like that, but I did get those a lot of those comments and I feel like, you know, seeing my ki- you know, watching my kids grow up through school, th- there, there is essentially kids are parroting what they hear at home. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, if their parents are saying to them, "Oh God, they come from Crawley," do you know what I mean? They, they, what's that? That, that they're not being malicious. They've been given the impression that people from Crawley are from a, di- you know, a, yeah. a different or poor or whatever, whatever you want to call it. And the same thing with like racial discrimination. It's like there becomes. there's a certain point in which you are just parroting what you're hearing at home and then that becomes crystallised and then that becomes your view, you know, unless something else comes in to, like, kind of shatter that. Same with 
any kind of discrimination or any kind of closed-mindedness. And so I find that kind of thing interesting. You know, what you said about growing up around trans people and stuff like that. I, I am so delighted that my children don't sexuality is just not an issue to them it's like not a thing in the way that it yeah. was for me when I was growing up they just don't they don't I was about to say they don't register the difference they do register the difference but they just don't care do you know what I mean mm. and like my kids like even the thing where like my kids will play as women on video games like the when I was a kid there's no way you would do that unless it was Tomb Raider there's, there's just there's just no way you're doing that do you know what I mean like just little things like that where I look at my kids and I think you know, and I think that's not that's not necessarily comprehensive education. That's how times have moved on. But I'm just I'm just very very. I just find it uplifting. I I, I just yeah. I love. I I just find it. I'm so. It makes me so happy to know that that's how they see the world. You know what I mean? And I'm, I find it exciting that you know my kids don't see. You know, they'll talk about differences between you know kids that have got English as an additional language. They'll talk about how they might be struggling, but they'll never. They never have a, there's no judgment attached to that, or no. not that there should be, but do you know what I mean? But it's just, they're so open, do you know what I mean? And I think that, I just love that. I, I just find yeah. it very exciting. I, I'm really happy about that. It gives me real hope. And I think, you know, we do see it on a wider scale. And I, I almost feel bad every time I interview a female comedian because it does come up about being a woman in comedy and how times have changed. And, and it, it can be tiring, I think, for women to have to occupy that space or to have to have those conversations. But what's come out of it is really interesting things like as a comic, often you work for yourself. So if you're, say, having a maternity leave, how long do you take off before you go back to work? Are you then worried about whether work is still going to be there when you come back, et cetera, et cetera. Like Sarah Pascoe said about going on QI, I think, after six weeks after giving birth because she was so worried. And that's Sarah Pascoe, for goodness sake. Do you know what I mean? Like one of the biggest comics in Britain now. So I wondered, seeing that reflection that we've seen in the world, if you think that, you know, what your opinions are on comedy having diversified and having changed. Well, I mean, you know, to take up on your point about women in comedy, you know, I, I can tell you as like a, a bloke doing comedy, it's harder for women. There's, there's, there's no argument, you know, and I, I you know, I, I've said it before, I just think it's harder on all at all levels you know when i started on the comedy circuit you were it would be harder to get booked as a woman audiences would immediately as soon as a woman walk on go just go oh this is not funny i, I don't find women and i'm not talking about men just doing that women would say i'd hear women saying that as well i don't find women funny you know and then on a tv level you know it's it was it was made public to a certain degree that there was a quota of women that were going to be booked on panel shows. And, you know, while that is on it, on the face of it, a positive thing, what that means is that every woman on every panel show is then a representative. And then like, if they're, you know, women should be allowed to be shit on things too. Men have been allowed to be <laughs> shit on things for ages. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And so like, if a woman's rubbish on a panel show, fine. You don't like that. But you know, but like what that woman shouldn't have to do is be a representative for the gender Oh, yeah. uh, uh, like you're the rep for female comedy. It's not fair. Do you know what I mean? And so I feel like I think that part of the reason that comedy, you know, I'm talking about the TV that I do in particular, part of the reason that sort of comedy on TV has not been diverse enough is because the people behind the scenes are from a certain background. And so your default setting is to book people. You know, people say, I don't find certain people funny. You know, if I find, if I see a comic that I don't find fun, that I don't find funny, but they are ripping it in the room, it's not that they're not funny. They're not funny to me. It doesn't mean they're not funny. Yeah. And what that means is they're talking about a set of experiences that I don't relate to. Comedy's really subjective, right? And like, I'm a heterosexual dude in his mid forties with kids. <laughs> if you, if you, if you, can relate to that you will find me funny but if you're a trans 19 year old you don't give a shit what i've got to say do you know what i mean and like that you know like that people and when people go i don't find women funny yeah you don't find women funny but that doesn't mean that people don't find women funny and it's like yeah. you know I, I feel like you know there are lots of sections of society not just female but you know economic sections of society ethnic sections of society you know all sorts of groups that have not been spoken to at all there's not somebody that talks about their experiences and i just feel like we're moving in the right direction and i i understand why people there was a bit of a backlash to shows getting loads and loads more diverse i get it because 
you're overcorrect. You're over- I do get the argument because you're overcorrecting. But the fact of the matter is, is that you have to because it's been underserved for such a long time. So what do you do? Do you wait for the whole industry to become so diverse that this is happening organically? We ain't got time for that. It needs to change now. So it's it's an imperfect solution to a problem that needed to be solved a long time ago. If that had happened organically over time, then fine, you wouldn't have to do that. You wouldn't have to go, we need to be looking to book diversely. My ideal, when diversity is great, is when we don't have to talk about booking diversity. You're just booking, and that happens to be diverse. Do you know what I mean? It's like, you know, the fact that you'd have an all-women panel show. You know, like I remember when uh, they did an all-female Cats Does Countdown, that should just be a thing that happens. Do you know what mm. I mean? It's not, it doesn't get a headline. It doesn't, I remember like the last time I was at the BAFTAs, like I, I, I do you know what happened is I hesitated to talk then because I realised I was telling a story about winning a BAFTA, which makes me want to bomb, but. <laughs> Own it. The last time I won a BAFTA, I came off the stage and they interviewed me backstage and they said, we've had some of the most diverse winners we've ever had at the BAFTAs. Uh, how do you feel about, you know, how do you feel about what that says about diversity? And I said, what that makes me feel is it's sad that you have to still ask me that question. Do you know what I mean? Because I feel like when we've truly achieved it is when it's not a thing anymore. We're a way off of that. Do you mm. know what I mean? And, and go, you know, you, we've heard all these arguments about it's going too far and blah, blah, blah. But the reason that, that people are making those arguments is that they have seen a single voice be represented for such a long time that this feels like it's going too far. It's not going too far. What happened was is that we didn't go far enough for a long, long time. Yeah. And so now it feels like a change. It feels weird to you. But, you know, I I feel like if you're watching a comedian that you don't find funny, just accept that they're not for you. That that is, it's as simple as that. There's no need to get angry about it. There's no need to suddenly say, oh, this is the state of comedy today. There's no reason to go, I used to enjoy Only Fools and Horses and I have to watch this person. They are not competing with your favourite sitcom of all time, okay? We're trying to offer variety and we're trying and, and different types of people want to be spoken to from comedy accept it it's not all going to be for you what are you the emperor that every <laughs> single thing that's delivered is specifically to your tastes and requirements Isn't what are you it? talking about what are you talking about there's loves of stuff i don't like or i don't, that doesn't for, i still respect its right to exist do you know what <laughs> i mean i don't i don't like love island i'm not going to demand it be taken <laughs> off the air because there are people that i know love it do you know what yeah. i mean so I just feel like, look, I get, I just, I just sort of feel like I find this argument that this is not funny or whatever. It's not funny to you. That doesn't mean it's not funny. Do you know what I mean? And like when you're watching it going, I don't understand why people are laughing at this because you're not those people. Do you yeah. know what I mean? There's, you know, I, I, my, if I become funny to all people, that means I've become so vanilla it's not worth carrying on. Do you know what I mean? I feel like, you know, you want to be, you want to be authentically you. And I feel like there are, there are people, I've gone on a rant on here, but like, but there are people, there, there are sections of society that have not been spoken to and now they are getting spoken to. And I, 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 I celebrate that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's great. Long mate, continue. I think also another thing, it's about cancel culture and comedians and this idea that as if some comedians somewhere are arguing that they can't be funny anymore because they're worried about being cancelled. And I don't know if you think this is true, but I think comedy in general is quite a kind place. Always got kinder. But I, I don't know how that relationship between cancel culture and comedy is. And if, if you feel it or if you think it's actually a thing or if it's something that people are hiding behind it. I mean, I, I feel like, um, you know, I could do an entire hour talking about what I think about this, but you know, the, the to try and summarise my thoughts on it. I, I feel like this whole idea of cancer culture is just such a fallacy. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I feel like you get comedians talking about how they can't say anything anymore and they tend to be the biggest comedians in the world. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, you know, some of these comedians who are saying that I'm going to say this because you're not allowed to say it anymore have got the biggest specials on Netflix. Do you know what I mean? They, they're, they're like, you know, I, I just don't agree with that. You know, look, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I do think people are more vocal in complaining when they've been offended. I, I don't think that is, uh, I don't think, I think there's, that's, there's truth in that. Like I would say that, you know, on my last tour, people complained about my tour to, you know, to my agent or whoever said he said this and I found it offensive. I had somebody like 
once get up and walk out because I'd said something about the environment that they didn't agree with or whatever. But that's not cancel culture. That is somebody not liking what I've said. And they're not stopping me from saying that thing. What is happening is, is that I now have a choice. Am I so concerned that that person got offended that I'm now going to stop saying that? Or am I going to carry on saying it? And most of the times I'm just going to carry on saying it because I've, I've thought a lot about what I'm saying. I, you know, I'm not throwing this stuff out there. And so I feel like I'm justified in what I'm saying. But I'm not being cancelled. You know, like that's somebody being offended. I think there's a difference. And I also feel like, we've, you know, I think you've sort of made two points there, two separate points, because, you know, cancel culture is one thing. You know, and I, I, I'm, I'm friends with Jimmy Carr, and, you know, Jimmy got into a lot of trouble for that... Um, for that, uh, the, 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 the gypsy joke that he made on his Netflix special that kind of went viral. And I felt like, you know, that joke, I I can understand why people are offended by that joke, but Jimmy, uh, has not been taken off anything. You know, he had a horrible time and, and, and he went for a tough time because the backlash was horrific. And as you know, social media is, is brutal. Mm. Um, but, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy's not been taken off of anything. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like this whole idea of offence, you know, people can be offended. It's up to you where you put yourself on that scale. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you might decide as a comedian, you know, I mates with Jason Manford as well. And Jason's like very much like, I don't want people to be offended at my show. I just want everyone to have a good time. And, and that's where Jason places himself. Jimmy places himself somewhere else. It's like, but, but the whole thing is, you know what you're getting when you go to see these people. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, but it, the other thing he said is, is, is comedy become a kinder place. I do think that, um, we've seen comedians emerge now that aren't as brutal in their humor. Do you know what I mean? And, and there aren't as like cutting and, you know, I feel like the variety of styles of comedy has broadened like over, over the last however long. And I feel like, I feel like comedy's better for it. And I, and I think it's, it's up to you to operate in whatever space you want to operate in. You know, like, to be honest with you, I kind of, you know, I do, I, I, I'm happy to admit that I say some harsh things at times. I try not to ever punch down, but that's my choice. If somebody did decide to punch down, I, I might not decide to go and watch them, but it's up to them if they want to do that. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I, I feel like, I just feel like comedy is a place where you should be able to say pretty much anything. And, and, and you know, the whole, and the whole point of comedy is, is to take a worldview and examine it and go, is that right? You know, I'm supposed, my point as a comedian is to look at the world slightly differently to how you would. Otherwise you might as well do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're supposed to unpick these things and look at it in a different way. And so whenever you're doing that, you can, you're, you're playing at the edges of, of, of what's acceptable and stuff like that. And, you know, when I've been doing warm-up shows, I've had an idea that I've been unpacking and because it's the first time I'm saying it out loud, I've probably, tr- <laughs> I've overstepped the line in, in what's okay. But that's been communicated to me straight away from the audience not laughing. Do, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Or they, or you can feel the awkwardness in the room. And so then I know, okay, the next time you do that, you probably, <laughs> you probably should, you probably should phrase it like that. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. look, you know, I, I, I think... You know, I'll probably say this to you, the podcast will come out and somebody get cancelled for a joke the next day. Do you know what I mean? It's the truth of it. But um, I, I, I don't want to undermine the experience of, I, I feel like, I don't want you to think that that means I think there are no consequences. People get offended and I totally disagree with these social media pylons and these, you know, these sort of yeah. cancellation by public opinion or whatever, I, I think is... I don't agree with that. And, you know, and like, I, I, I've, I've seen people be on the receiving end of that and I think it's rank. But in terms of like you not being able to say what you want to say in comedy, I don't know how much I agree with that, to be honest with you. Yeah. You said it there and I, I do think it's really interesting because obviously with the rise of social media, big sigh, and everyone needing to be on it, you know, you've got everyone kind of needs to be on it if you're slightly in the public eye to try and promote yourself and and that opens its own can of worms but it also means that people have access to you in a way that they never did before they can speak directly to you how do you handle that because i'm sure there are some nice elements you probably get lots of people saying you're the funniest man in the world and then you might also get people saying you're the least funny man in the world yeah i mean i think i'd argue that both those things are equally damaging i mean i i mean i think like having a a direct plug into what people think of you probably isn't good. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that 
I don't think it's good both ways. Like, I, I sometimes wonder if, like, when I used to go and watch, you know, I'm in my 40s, my best years are behind me. But, like, when I when I used to go and watch, like, stand-up and stuff like that, I'd never seen these, you know, I'd seen these people on TV a little bit, and they were mega stars, but I didn't, I couldn't contact them. I didn't know what they're up to on a day-to-day basis. I didn't know what they had for lunch the, the day previously. And then when they'd walk on stage, you'd be like, I cannot believe I'm in the same room as this person. I cannot believe it. I don't think people have that experience now, unless it's like Taylor Swift or someone like that. Do you know what I mean? I, I just don't, I just don't think people have that. And, and I think that, um, I've managed to get to a point where I'm, I, I feel pretty much, uh, immune to social media criticism, but, but I just sort of think like, it's not, it's not, these people often, you know, whenever I've challenged somebody, it turns out they didn't mean it as bad. They were just trying to get a reaction or yeah. they just thought they were trying to be funny or whatever. And you can interpret it the wrong way. And nine times out of 10, these people aren't as horrible as you, as, as you interpret them to be from their comments. But if somebody's messaging me saying you're the funniest comedian in the world, I immediately think you need to watch more comedy. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, you know, if they say that was the greatest show I've ever seen, I don't even think that would be even true if you'd only watch two shows. Like, what, the, 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 I don't think knowing that people think you're great or thinking people thinking you're awful, I don't think knowing that is good. I, I, mm. I feel like I don't want it to affect what I'm doing because, like, I want to – I'm getting awfully worthy here, but the, the point I'm trying to make is I just want to make stuff that I think is good, and if I start allowing what people's opinions are of that to f- get into my head – I might start trying to appease them and then I feel like my, what I'm doing will get worse as a result. So you, you have to kind of tune it out. Having said that, there are loads of really nice things that people have sent me that I think are amazing. And, and not, I'm not talking about like people saying you're really good, but like somebody going, you know, for example, I do a podcast with Tom Davis, but somebody saying to me, my mum was really ill and she was bedridden and we were really struggling. And one of the things that we took comfort from was listening to the podcast. You know, I, I never would have known that if I didn't have social media. Yeah. So there are things that I sort of feel grateful for to it. But I think that you have to take, you know, if I was giving anybody in the public eye any advice would be to almost completely disregard everything that you're being told by people because they don't, they're not making eye contact with you. They're not talking to you face to face. Do you know what I mean? And they don't even think you're a person a lot of the time. They, yeah. They're not thinking I might upset this bloke. They're thinking this is like some bulletproof celeb or whatever you want to, whatever word you want to put on it. And I, I don't think they're thinking like that. So I feel like you just got to dis, you've, you've almost got to disregard all of it. Do you know what I mean? And, I think it, I feel so actually, you know, we talked about Love Island. I, I've had a situation where over the last 10 to 15 years, I've been on TV and my profile has increased uh, before the inevitable decline again, but like it's sort of increased gradually. So I've seen my social media presence in, you know, my profile increase and number of comments come in. Somebody on Love Island is going from zero to a hundred, like overnight I don't know what that's, I can't even relate to what that must be like mentally to, to go from somebody with a couple of hundred followers and then you've got a million and everybody's telling you what they think of you. I can't even begin to, like for me, it's been relatively gradual, but to have that happen to you that suddenly, you know, I, I, I can't, it must be really hard, really hard. In terms of, you know, I, I feel like having listened to podcasts with you and, and watching your stand-up, you are very open as a person. And mm. um, you t- you talk a lot about, you know, your home life, you talk about your wife, you talk about your children. Do they mind being the brunt sometimes of your jokes? I found increasingly I mind, to be honest with you. Like, like when, yeah. I, when, I, when I first started talking about, there's one show at tour in particular where I talked about my kids pretty brutally. The whole point of view was supposed to be, I love my children, but they infuriate me because, right? You know, that was supposed to be, that's supposed to be the overarching kind of view. And my kids, that, that, that stuff I did years ago and my kids have now seen it. Like not, they didn't seek it out. It gets clipped up and put on TikTok or whatever. So they stumble across it by accident. 
And, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to say that they just don't care. You know, they just don't care. You know, they see it as like stand up and they, they actually detach. You know, I'm talking about them from a few years ago. So to them, it's like my, one of my kids went, yeah, it was mad that I did that. Like I could understand why you'd be annoyed. Do you know what I mean? Like they get it and they also get that that's kind of my career. And similarly with my wife, um, she just doesn't care. I, I, I mean, you know, not in like a, she's, she, she just sees it as comedy. But like, what I would say to you is everything I'm saying is based in, you know, it comes from a real emotion. It comes from a real reaction to something. So it's not like when I say it's comedy, I'm not making it up. It's, you know, it is true, but they just see it as like, you know, they know how much I love them. Do you know what I mean? They, you know, my kids and my wife know what our home life is. And now whenever I write stuff about that, I still talk, you know, this tour that I'm writing at the moment, I talk about my kids but I always try and make myself the butt of the joke. It's like, it's my reaction. That's the problem rather than who they are. That's the problem. Do you know what I mean? And, and even to the point where I sort of, in my last show, I did a, a bit about how infuriated I was with my child for demanding a breakfast cereal that we didn't have. Right. You know, and like how unreasonable I thought that was. And then I point, I, I pointed out the other point of view, which is, this guy knows which breakfast cereal I like, but refuse, repeatedly refuses to get it. Like I could understand why it's frustrating from his point of view, but um, yeah, they, like they don't mind. But what I would say is like, sometimes when I think about some of the stuff I've said in the past, I feel like I don't want them to ever be upset by something I've said, you know, like I don't want them to ever be. And so far they haven't been, you know, and they've watched all of it and they've seen the very worst of it. Do you know what I mean? But like, uh, uh, and they're they're cool with it, but it could have it could have gone the other way. I'm I'm aware of that. You've done so much. I mean, what I get from you it, overwhelmingly is you're very humble. You're a very nice man, and you're a good interviewee. But I do also get this idea that even though you've had a very successful career, you know, you've done so many different shows. You now write TV. You act. Um, you're still doing stand up. Do you think? that your work ethic comes from almost a fear that any day it could disappear. You know, you made a joke there about the fact that one day it will decline. I'd like to yeah. see it happen. I don't think it will. <laughs> and would you, out of all of the things that you do, still choose stand-up? I went through a period of, like, two periods of kind of hitting rock bottom financially. One was, you know, when I talked to you about being in the bed and breakfast and my dad going to prison or whatever. And then the other one was just after I started doing comedy when I couldn't afford to pay the bill. My dad passed away and then we had to help my mum out and I just couldn't afford to pay the bills because I wasn't making any money and we were struggling. Were you doing comedy full time then? I just started doing comedy full time and then like my dad passed away like two days before I went full time. And uh, I hope it's not a sign of what he thought about my move to go into comedy. But um, but um, he he passed away, and then we kind of got I kind of got distracted by that, and so then like I was really broke. But you know I I can honestly sit here and tell you that if it all went away tomorrow, I'd kind of be I'd be all right with it. I mean I don't need I don't need my career to be happy. I I, I feel really blessed, and I'm so lucky that. I can't think of the last time I dreaded a day at work and I don't know how many people can say that. Do you know what I mean? I, I dread being away from home, but I don't ever dread what I'm going in to do. And I, I am, I feel so lucky for that. I almost feel embarrassed to say it out loud. I love my job so much. Like every aspect of what I do for a living, I love. Um, but I don't, it's not what makes me, you know, like I don't think anything made me happier than when I was first able to pay my tesco's bill with comedy because you know like when i was able to pay to, the first time i was able to clear my monthly outgoings through comedy the incremental ad addition to my happiness i've never matched in anything i've ever done in my career since like that thing of i'm paying the bills from comedy that was when people say to me how do you know you've made it that was my made it moment and then everything else has been amazing but this is that was over and above my initial goal. My initial goal was, can I pay my bills through comedy? And so, the honest truth of it is, is if the phone stopped ringing or if I fell out of favor, fell out of favor, which you know it's a fickle industry, it could happen. Do you know what I mean? It could happen. You know, this time in a month. By the time this podcast comes out, they <laughs> might they might go to you. Oh, do you know? What? I don't know if it's worth putting out. But like, <laughs> but um, you know, the truth of it is, I'd be cool with that. I, I, I sort of feel like. I've had such a great run 
Do you know what I mean? I, and I've I, I've done so many things that I never dreamed I'd be able to do. If it stopped now, I'd have nothing to complain about, really. Like it's like what a, what a great time I've had. But I I feel like I, I would always do stand up. I think even if I didn't make money from stand up, even you know, and, and I think whatever level I get to, if my profile gets to a point where I'm playing thirty seaters or something, and that's my stand up, I will still be doing stand up. And then if it drops below that, you'll see me in a park somewhere. <laughs> I've hooked up a microphone to some lamppost. And I, I'm just delivering it in the street. But I just love stand-up so much, man. Are you excited for your tour? What's the kind of process like? Do you feel nervous beforehand? Do you feel prepared? You're talking to me in my in the most nerve-wracking point of the of the tour, basically, which is it's two months away from starting. I'm about 75% of the way there to the show being what I want it to be. And how good that show is completely hinges on what happens over the next couple of months. Like I've, I've kind of got the bulk of it and now I'm kind of like putting it together. You know, this is what, this is what's going to be the difference between it being an all right show and a really good show is what I do over the next few. So this is when I'm at my most nervous. Cause I'm thinking like, I've got to put the work in. Do you know what I mean? Like this is the last stretch of training for a marathon. Do you know what I mean? What, what, once you, once you get to the tour, the first few tour, tour shows are nerve wracking, but once the show's locked in, you're just having a good time then. Cause you sort of go, I know the show, I, I've got the show to where I want it to go. And now I just got to deliver it the best I can. That is just pure fun. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Just going out and doing that. That is just like amazing. But at this moment in time, my wife is having to deal with a lot of me coming back from work in progress shows going, I think I need to pull the tour, man. I just don't think it's going to be good. It's not going to be ready, in t- you know, that. I mean, it's so self-indulgent. <laughs> it's unbelievable. She has to listen to this idiot who's, like, achieved his dreams coming back and go, I just don't, I just don't think they love me enough on the show tonight, Lise. Do you know what I mean? Why am I doing this? Oh, did they not laugh and applaud for you as much <laughs> as you wanted? Oh, you poor baby. It's really pathetic. She sounds like an angel. You now host The Weakest Link. Uh, yeah. Were Anne Robinson's shoes tough to fill? And were you surprised to land the gig? Yes, to, is the answer to both those questions. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, um, I, I'd never sort of wanted to be a be a quiz show it's not because I think there's anything wrong with it I just don't think I just didn't ever think I'd be good at it it's like going do you want to be a break dancer you, I, I just <laughs> didn't see it as something that I was going to be good at um but then when they sort of talked to me about doing the weakest link obviously the weakest link is huge do you know what I mean it's like such a exciting thing to be even be associated with I, I, I was really surprised I was genuinely surprised I you know I, I I didn't expect to get that call and so um, when my agent, my agent first said to me, look, first thing I can say to you, it's, it's a quiz show. So I know you're straight away. You're not going to be, she goes, but it's the weakest link. And she goes, I just wanted you to think about it. And, and the thing was, it's a double edged sword for the reasons you said one, it's massive, but two, Anne Robinson smashed it. Do you know what I mean? And so you're sort of going, is this something that I think is going to be all right. And, and what I thought was, well, you know, one of the things said to me is just do it how you would do it. Like they said, you know, we don't want you to try and emulate Anne, which would be horrifying to watch. <laughs> but they said, just do it how you would do it and and be yourself. And so, and so I thought to myself, well, it's been long enough. I feel like, you know, I'm not replacing, I am replacing Anne literally, but I'm not replacing Anne and like trying to be Anne. I'm so different to her. And so this weakest link is almost a different beast to the other weakest link. Do you know what I mean? It's the same. The quiz is the, sh- the star of the show. I just facilitate it differently. Do you know what I mean? And so I feel like when we did the first series, it felt like we were making good shows. The truth is nobody, nobody that's a massive weakest link fan really cares about the host. I mean, the, the quiz, the quiz is like so bulletproof and like celebs getting panicky is so addictive that actually, as long as you can sort of read out loud, you're doing all right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so like, I kind of, when we did the first series, I was sort of feeling like, I, I feel like these are good shows, but I've got no idea what people want. And, and I remember like reading a review going really early on, I think they'd showed a preview and somebody said, Romish is probably too nice to the contestants to host this. And I remember thinking that's probably a valid point because I, I, I'm, I, you know, I am taking the mickey out of the contestants, but not in a, not in the way that Anne did. It's a bit more of a, I'm on the same side as you, but that was a dumb thing to say, right? It's more kind of affectionate, I guess. But, um, 
but you don't know if people are going to like that or not. But thankfully, the first series came out and the response was wicked. So when we came to do the second and the third series, you feel a bit sure of yourself. Do you know what I mean? You sort of feel like, okay, I know that people don't hate this. So, you know, we found a groove. And I feel like we did find, we have found a groove now. Well, Ramesh, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure. Well, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute, uh, well, I was trying to think of another word for pleasure, but I, I couldn't. I can't. Yeah, I can't. Bearing in mind that my crew is based on spoken word. That is slightly concerning, but Never anyway, mind. What can anyway, you do? Thank you. Thanks, mate. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to my conversation with comedic actor Miriam Margulies or my episode with Jack Whitehall. If you're ready to indulge in some Christmas spirit, why not listen to my chat with Will Ferrell? All can be found by scrolling back through the Radio Times podcast feed. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast with me, your host, Kellyanne Taylor. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do follow, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps other TV and film lovers find us. Until next Tuesday, happy viewing.